0: Where does psychology end and philosophy begin in our human journey? What is good? What is evil? How should I live my life? Richard Grannon returns to discuss the importance of continuing to wrestle with questions just like this. While previously we spoke about codependency, people pleasing, and the impact of trauma, in this conversation we go further into why a lack of moral philosophy will leave you in a weakened and unboundaried state that can be so easily preyed upon by the outside world. This is about our thinking, our decision-making, and how we put boundaries into our life to live a more healthy life and existence. Considering your moral philosophy is not as difficult as you think, but it's possibly more important than you may ever consider. There's a strong suggestion that this may also sit at the heart of some of our rising mental health issues. As always, speaking to Richard was a true privilege and honour. He has a gr- he's incredibly articulate, and has an amazing sense of humour. This conversation pushed me right to the forefront of my thinking currently and possibly right to the forefront of my use of language, as you will see. So enjoy Richard. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming back Mr. Richard Grannon. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on again, Brent. Pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you. And so last time it was the Wirral. This time is the Dominican Republic.
1: Yeah, not much much change. The beach here is much like the beach at Hoy Lake. Um <laughs> it's a little warmer, that's all. And there's just different, different, birds, different birds. Different
0: birds. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So um I was really keen to have you back on the podcast. Um the last time we were together, we really talked about the other half of the puzzle, you know, having dived into narcissism, we then looked at the other side of the puzzle and went into codependency, which for I and for many of the listeners was hugely mm-hmm. triggering, which is always a good thing. Um, I think we mentioned it, benevolently triggering. Yeah. And um, from that, that, um, that caused a lot of deep reflection for myself. What I started to notice was that, while well, that was hugely helpful, um, there was there was this sense, deep sense, that there was something more out there. There, you know, to me as a, my development, and and to those around me in terms of their development as a grown up, as an adult. And at the same sort of time, I started to notice that you were talking more about um, going beyond psychology and into sort of moral philosophy and um i know that you've spoken a fair bit about that on your channel so i guess the first question just to put some personal context around it was what was it that was emerging for you personally when you started to sense that you were sort of going from one topic to another um well
1: (laughs) it's a big question um a couple of thoughts just just came to me then when you said that the issue of codependency was triggering and created you know, some good good conflict, all shadow work should be triggering and it should be very, very uncomfortable. Shadow work in, in the Jungian sense. This year, 2020, I've particularly noticed, well, shadow work becomes more pertinent as we see a collective shadow emerging that possesses people in exactly the way that Jung predicted. I was ne- I've never been very impressed with Jung until this year. And shadow work I thought was kind of the the new age end of the spectrum of psychology, not particularly interesting for me, but this year I've really, my respect for Jung has gone through the roof and the focus on shadow work and its pertinence has really, really increased for me. And I think that psychology has its own shadow, as in the field of psychology has a shadow. To the extent that the human shadow, according to Jung, is everything that, we, that is part of us, but that we disavow. And if you think of what a shadow is, you have an object, light hits the object, and the shadow is cast based on where the light cannot pass through. So it's the non-conscious, it's the non-light, it's the dark, it's the unconscious. Psychology has an unconscious, and it disavows things. And um, probably at the beginning of the year, people were recommending me the book, The Courage to be Disliked which is translated from Japanese into English and is a study of Adler, um, who was a peer of Jung's and they were, they were both friends with Freud for a while. It's a, it's not a very well-written book, but it's a good introduction to Adler. And so I started to through Adler and Jung at the beginning of this year. And then through the events of this year, I started to look and just ask myself the question, you know, what, what what does, the field of psychology imply when we talk in its terms and we use its coordinates, it enforces the shadow element onto us. That's the nature of language because language is, is a map. And that on a map, there is that which is not. And it also forms the map. It's a difficult idea to grasp. But on yeah. any map of reality, there is that which is. And you think that's what a map is. Of course it is. It's a map. Here's a hill. Here's a tree. Here's a door. But it is also mapping that which is not, that which is not there, and these things could be equally important. So, in a roundabout way, to answer your question, I was noticing there was uh, that the the way we're talking about psychology recreates, tra- um, re- uh, repeats, and reinforces traumatic patterns of of behaviour. Because if you're traumatised, you're weakened. And it further weakens a person. Psychology actually further weakens people in many ways. Adler was very clear on this. Jung, less so. Freud, really not at all. Um, and it really weakens people. So I was like, well, what, what do we need? And the only places I could find what we need uh, were in philosophy, outside the boundaries of psychology, because psychology can't, and pro- probably rightly shouldn't, talk about morality, because it's it's always relative, and it's always culture bound, and psychology probably should try not to be um, uh, morally, uh, what what would you say, like morally deterministic, it should be morally relative and it should should look at, it should look with fluidity at different people's experiences. That's right for the study of psychology, but it's not a way to live your life. If you try to live your life by psychology's coordinates, you'll get very sick.
0: Yeah, so when you say it weakens people, how does it do that? (laughs) Well,
1: again, it's the. I don't know if people are, how many people would be interested. Uh, there's a, there's a, a Slovenian philosopher called Slavoj Žižek. He's very famous as a philosopher, but he was a psychoanalyst first. And it was also through listening to him, he kept on talking about um, the, the unconscious and the reality of the virtual and how that which is not affects things and I was like, this is too high level for me, mate. I'm a former nightclub bouncer. I don't get this. It's too, it's too intellectual for me. And it took me about three years. And eventually I was I was waiting to get onto a plane. I was in a queue to board a plane. And I had him playing in my ears and it just clicked. I was like, oh that's what he means. So there's this there's this issue of the presupposition and the assumptions and the coordinates there's a presupposition to what we're doing. We're creating a podcast with this yeah. a presupposition that we're going to say something interesting. The coordinates we're operating from is that through the conversation between me and you, people will uh, consume it and enjoy it and get something useful and interesting from it. And we don't say it. We don't say it explicitly, but it's kind of assumed. I mean, otherwise, why, why would we do it? <laughs> so the, so it becomes then it becomes perform, there's a performance element to it that otherwise wouldn't be there for just as a as a simple example so the the, the coreness of psychology are as follows you are sick you are weak there is something wrong with you now let's begin our conversation it's silent nobody says that but it's yeah. fully implicit it's fully implicit you can't get away from that in psychology people in the comments will say no no my school of psychology doesn't do that My school of psychology is positive. We assume, I'm sorry, nonsense. Nobody ever escaped Freud. No psychologist anywhere in the world, anywhere in human history ever escaped Freud. We're all his children, we're all his grandchildren. He is granddaddy and nobody escaped him. Even people who loathe him and did everything they could to cleanse Freud from their own systems never did because you can't, you can't do it. So the presupposition of psychology is you're a broken vessel and you need something putting into you, sorry to be so Freudian and yeah. sexual, but it does do that, it's, it's a consumerist endeavor. I need something, thing, thing, psycho, psychoanalytic theory, I need the thing in me, which is Freudian, it's sexual, to make me whole, to make me better. And um, there are many schools of philosophy that would say, no, you don't. No, and they're older than psychology by thousands of years, and they say, "No, you don't. You need less. You think yeah. you need something to bring into you. You think you need ideology, entertainment, and psychology. You need less. You want the thing, but you need no thing. You need that which is not."
0: Is this a bit? Is this a bit airy fairy, mate? No, because um, what you describe there is the underpinning of our modern consumer capitalist world which is what we talked about in the last podcast which is yeah. you know um it, it, it one of the things i was thinking about when you said that there is is even even your modern day uh, uh, even your modern day you know life coach or something like that who who has who will say you know i'm, I'm not all the way into the psychology stuff you know i just do a bit of life coaching a bit of nlp and this that and the other but how do you sell how do you sell your service yeah. you yeah. were broken. I have the solution. Come yeah. to me and we'll fix it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's 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 across the board. And you 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 know, you 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 nailed it there because you said the word sell. Well, yeah. You can't sell, you can't sell nothing. You must have a thing. So implicit within psychology for the psychologists who know a little bit about psychoanalytic theory is it's riddled with object fetishism. It's riddled with um, Thing focusedness, object fetishism. We think the thing will save us. We think the thing is imbued with magic. All of our advertising, all of our marketing, all of our propaganda, all of our films are reinforcing this toxic idea that there's a thing that saves you. It could be a person, it could be a magic jewel, it could be a weapon, it could be whatever. A relationship yeah. becomes a thing, a thing to be consumed. Love becomes a thing to be consumed and mm. saves you. And mm. there is nothing there's nothing there so it's 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 kind of a hard doctrine to grasp but it is much healthier much much healthier and as you said sell things only things can be sold Uh, somebody asked me the other day about martial arts and how many martial arts are there in the world and i was saying to them listen if you look at china and you look at kung fu just china the country of china over Mm -hmm. the centuries people have uh, logged over 600 different purported styles just in China alone. Some people say it's over over a thousand different styles of martial arts. All humans, one head, two arms, two legs, all claiming to move in distinct and significant ways. so, so So that there can be no overlap, they're boundary separate styles. It's nonsense, it's a sales pitch. The whole of, of, just take that one area, martial arts, riddled with consumerism, riddled with object fetishism, riddled with magical thinking, that's martial arts. Imagine, expand it out from that one small area to whatever subject you like, and you'll never get away from this. The human desire for content is infinite. Once people have been infected with object fetishism, their greed for things, and I don't always mean material, the physical thing. It could be an intellectual yeah. thing. It's infinite. Yeah. Your, your appetite is, is endless.
0: There's a lot in that. I'm loving it. Um, because, yeah, the, particularly the content as well, because we, we have gone from not just consuming physical things, but now to you know sound even this bloody podcast that we're talking to now will be yeah. content to somebody and they yeah. will be here because they think that they will get something from this conversation which yes yeah, yeah. so on one level it, we're essentially switch off right now <laughs> yeah exactly well it, it, we're feeding the
1: beast we are feeding the beast because um <clears throat> apart from the greed i think that there's fatigue So there's content greed and there's content fatigue now. A lot of people are just
0: completely
1: burnt out and overstuffed with uh, with content. They're totally overstuffed. And it's actually stressful. Even though people are enjoying it, not everything that feels good is good for you. And not everything that feels bad is bad for you. Just because you're enjoying stuffing yourself with content um, it doesn't mean that, that 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 it is improving you in any meaningful way. And I think a lot of people really are suffering from con- uh, consumption fatigue and content fatigue. Mm. Mm. And they could do with a lot less in their lives. Now, try and sell that idea. You just need less. Yes. I'm going to sell you less. I'm
0: going <laughs> to sell you nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so with that in mind when we start talking about moral philosophy Mm -hmm. just so we're crystal here what Mm. exactly do you mean when you're talking about moral philosophy big question but there we go um
1: like many things that i have to do uh you know in my role as life coach content provider online Psycho babble speaker. When I'm trying to help people and I want to uh, actually make a difference, my fantasy is that people could listen to something I've said, try an exercise I've told them to do for a week and really have their lives changed, really have their perception changed forevermore. That's my fantasy. I think sometimes it works, sometimes I've, I've been successful. But you can't always tell people what you're really doing until after they've done it because otherwise they won't do it and they won't receive the benefit of it So when I encourage people to engage in developing a moral philosophy What I'm really asking them to do is to think and to make decisions and to draw boundaries But if I say we're going to teach you how to think they'll say well screw you rich and gran and you don't tell me how to think already know." yeah how to make decisions and how to draw boundaries. They go, oh, that sounds very adult and dry and boring, and you're gonna ask me to do my accounts afterwards, and they just <laughs> won't listen. Whereas if you say something somewhat vaguer, like let's develop a moral philosophy, some people go, oh, I don't really you know, well, that's weird. Oh, yeah. I'll listen to him for five minutes and see what he has to say. That sounds right? bifaluting almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, it's kind of pompous, which I like, I'm a pompous gentleman. Um, and, and I do think, you know, There is a real appetite uh, for this out there. I think like when you look at the rise of um, public intellectuals like Jordan Peterson, that was really one of the core things, we're talking object fetishism things, that he offered was the ability for people to reclaim a moral philosophy. Now, he was preachy, rigid, and didactic in that, which is fine because people had a taste for it. They wanted uh, to be spanked and had the finger wagged at them and be told what to do. Because everybody was telling them, do whatever you want. So they had the desire for the opposite flavored thing to consume and, and he was that. Um, but when people are recovering from trauma and when they're getting through a life that is fundamentally traumatic, people do need to know the difference between right and wrong. Hmm. And there being, that distinction is being eroded every day So you're being given content, brainwashing, that says nothing is right, nothing is wrong, everything is relative, do what you want, do what you feel, feel good, feel good, feel good, good all the time, consume, consume, consume. Keep pushing the pleasure button, keep wanking, keep watching porn, keep eating McDonald's. If it feels good, do it. And then you have the opposite, the opposite flavor is, well, learn to distinguish right from wrong. Make a commitment, that's right, and I do that, even if it sucks. And that's wrong, and I don't do that, even if it feels great. And that's really where I was hoping uh, to lead people to, because they're telling me that they feel crazy, they're telling me they feel insane, they're telling me they have mental health issues, whilst living in a culture that really, of course, is gonna drive you completely insane. If you, go, if you live by the current, if you live a normal life now, you will go batshit crazy inside of five years.
0: 100%. And I think that's that's been a big theme for me of recent, which is that, and we, we sort of spoke about this beforehand, is that there seems to be this story that everyone's going along with, but at the same time, no one fucking believes it. And, and okay, we could use COVID, but there's so many other things in our lives, you know, that we're becoming more and more aware of stories that we've brought into all of our lives, but all of a sudden, we're almost being jettisoned out of them. And it's like, well, and, I, and I've heard you speak before about the more that you, the more that you say that you agreed to do something under almost duress, whether it's from a, you know, overbearing narcissistic partner, or whether it's from a, from a boss or whether it's from just the system and you're forced to say, I like this, even though deep down you don't that the more, that's mm-hmm. going to scramble and mess, any sort of underlying moral network or framework that you have in place already.
1: Yes. Yes. There was, um, a British psychiatrist who worked in the prison system system and he was quoted in Douglas Murray's, uh, book his last book, Not the Strange Death of Europe. Oh my God, I can't remember the name of his last book. It's a very good book, uh, it'll come to me. Um, and he said that when you force uh, a population to tell lies and to repeat things that they know are not true, you have communism writ small. Communism writ small. And the effect of that is humiliation. You, hum- you humiliate and demotivate the population. So, if you wanted a full, broad-scale, hostile takeo- takeover, Stalin-style, Mao-style, Ho Chi Minh-style, you start by policing words and thoughts and getting people to say things and agree okay. to things that they, they know in their core, in your, in your soul, in your heart. You know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. You There's no way that you would believe that, but you have to go along because everybody else is. And you think, well, that's just a small thing. I won't die on that hill, I'll let that happen. But actually, it's not a small thing. The little lie leads to the big lie. And we know that it was a brainwashing technique um, under Ho Chi Minh's uh, regime. Well, it wasn't a brainwashing technique, it was a way of breaking American soldiers that they'd taken prisoner. They would say, "Um, say that you hate America. No, I love America, screw you. Okay, no problem. Um, You love America. We we believe you, you're a good soldier, you're doing your job. Is there one thing you don't like about America? Just one thing, anything, anything. Listen, there's a lovely hot meal over there, we'll give you some rice and chicken. Just write down on a piece of paper for me, one thing that ticks you off. Could be traffic, could be taxes, could be anything. So they would would get them to say one thing, and then inside of three or four weeks, they'd be on TV saying that they, they were denouncing America and they thought that communism was a good idea. The folks back home would watch that in America and say, Oh, they must have tortured them to bits, they must have pulled their f no, they didn't. They didn't. They just got them to admit one thing, just yeah. one little boundary break, and then from there you you can you can tear the whole thing down. So the effect of saying things that we know are not true, is, as as you rightly say, is humiliation, demotivation, and domination in the end. We we, mm. we just end up submitting because with showing ourselves that we're shitty people, that we're not worth fighting yeah. for. So why would we, why fight? Why bother?
0: Which is sort of goes around full circle back into this whole codependency of becoming then Oh, I want to master in a slave and I'll abdicate out my responsibility. And that's yeah. where we were in the last discussion. But I, I guess what I can see now is, is that that just any sort of moral framework that you might have might have been imparted into you from mum, dad, brothers, sisters, teachers, you know, anything that's good and wholesome, let alone less than that, will just get scrambled over a period of time. And you'll, yes. you'll, you'll lose touch with that. Yes. Yes. Um,
1: I, I do. I do suspect that children are born uh, with a moral framework. Um, you often hear toddlers one of the toddlers complaints well uh, from the moment children can speak is they'll complain that things are not fair mm. um, and even if they're wrong it shows that they have a very strong sense that um they want things to be fair and if they're not that they get really pissed off they get angry and sad so i i think it's something that we're born with and it's really in the core of our beings we have a sense of right and wrong we already know but if we can if if people in power can convince their subjects that they don't know, that they're wrong about what's right and wrong, that they're confused, that their morality is askew or off, then you can break them. You can break them down and you can do things to them and make them do things to each other that are completely wrong, um, and they become useful idiots. Uh, you, know, you can make them execute other humans that who are from the same nation as them, um on some very odd non-scientific ideas you know as the nazis did with the jews something i was uh, scrolling through instagram this morning and i was i was looking at a, a photograph taken i just captured a moment of a group of nazis standing behind uh, a, a, a presumably a jewish guy in a suit about to be shot in the head and, and dropped into a mass grave and you kind of think they're all germans everybody in that picture is german they were all raised speaking German, they were all neighbors until, you know, four to 10 years before this picture was taken. Um, These were not not outsiders, they were dentists, accountants, they were bankers, they were writers, they were integral parts of society. And within a relatively short period of time, they've been completely demonized and otherized. And the humans in that picture You know, you'd say, well, they're all psychopaths. And and you just think, statistically, that's not possible. They can't all be psychopaths. They can't. There's just not, in any population, you can have a psychopathic culture. Okay, yes. And Nazism was a psychopathic culture. But every human in that picture is not a psychopath. Not possible. It's just not possible. What they are is people who are going Mm -hmm. along and they're doing what they're told. And they've got the uniform on and they've been given their orders and they might not like it and they might whinge about it. And they might grumble about it, as soldiers do. They spend most of their time whinging. Everybody knows that about soldiers when they're working. But they still, somebody put the people onto the cars, somebody took them to the place, somebody dug the grave, and then somebody else knelt them down and then another man's long and shoots them in the back of the head. Why? Because we're going along with it. We're obeying Mm -hmm. orders. We're doing what we've been told to do. And at a certain point, think you have to start questioning the validity mm. of that being a moral philosophy it's not a moral philosophy to say i do as i'm told that's not a fucking moral <laughs> philosophy
0: that's slave like morality again isn't it
1: yeah, uh, i think it's, it's exactly exactly that exactly what a great point it is slave morality it's nietzsche's slave morality it's a fake morality it's a junk morality
0: yeah and we'll, we'll come back to that junk in just a sec but again i've had a podcast guest Thomas Bjorkman puts it beautifully it's like it's our connection with his collective he calls it a collective imaginary and he gave the example of air and money now we both carry on like both are equally as important and we couldn't live without either but the truth is is if we made a decision to try and give up air tomorrow we wouldn't really get very far whereas if we (laughs) wanted to we could give up money tomorrow yes but yeah you can't go and do that on your own because you can't go into a supermarket tomorrow and then say, well, you know, I don't believe in the concept of money because you're not going to get very far and you're going to end up quite hungry. Yeah. But then the yeah. challenging thing is, is that when we all buy into that same money, but then all of a sudden you see another fellow human on the street with nowhere to go and no food. And that's all because we're buying into this collective imaginary around money. And that's why, And I think for me, that's where this boundary between psychology and philosophy started to emerge for me, because it's all very well me doing the work on me, and you know, traumas come up, and there are things to work through, and yes, I do need to take responsibility of my behaviours and stuff like that. But it's very much for me, it was very much me inside Brin, but Mm -hmm. Brin's not an independent island of Brin. Brin also interacts with the outside world,
1: and if Mm -hmm. I start.
0: I mean, just the inner world of Britain, and I become a bit intense, I become a bit boring, I can become a bit egocentric, and generally, I'm just not a great member of the community. Um, And then that, in and of itself, then you know, leads you as a lonely person, and all of that. So, I I found that that's where the boundary came for me. You just talked there about um, before I mentioned slave morality, you also started to talk about junk values, and you mentioned this earlier on Mm -hmm. that. How much do you think that some of our, and I'm going to use the bunny ears here, mental health issues mm. um, when we cling to words that are quite in vogue, such as, oh, I've got anxiety, or oh, I've got depression, are not actually emotive, well, they're not, probably are some sort of emotive response, but really it's a response to the fact that you're living a shite life based off junk values which you've bought into. Which have no grounding, have no—they're not life bringing. They're sort of life shrinking almost, and, and and it can leave you feeling kind of dead and hollow inside. Does that make sense? So I'll be careful when I answer that question, um, okay. and I, I, I hope that people can
1: hear me when when I answer it this way. If you were, if we're being good statisticians, and this was a psychology experiment, and we really wanted an answer to the question you posed, and it's a good question, and I hope somebody does do the psychology experiment. And if you say of what percentage of people who say they have mental health issues actually are just living the right symptoms of a shit life, Hmm. I would say 99.9%. Now, I did not say that 99.9% of all men of genuine mental health issues are the result of living a shit life. That's not what I said. But the overwhelming majority of people who will tell you, I have anxiety, I have depression, I'm on pills, I have this, I have that. It's just the the symptom, the right symptoms of living a shit life. And I say the right symptoms because you should have symptoms when you do the wrong thing. There should be pain when you do something stupid, when you put your hand in, in a hot place it should burn it shouldn't there should be yeah. no, there shouldn't be no consequence so the consequence of living of watching six hours of TV a day eating junk food doing a job you hate going from the office to the to the living room to the bedroom over and over and over again yes you'll get anxious and depressed because you know what you're not evolved for that. That's not yeah. the entity that you are. That's not the animal that you are. You're not involved to uh, be under fluorescent lighting all day, uh, breathing you know, inside house air. It's, it's crap. It's just a crap quality of life. When it comes to authentic mental health issues, it's very hard, well, it's impossible, in fact, to draw the boundary between yeah. real mental health issues and the mental health issues that just come from bad life because... Look, most mental health issues, I believe, are caused by trauma, and a normal life is traumatic. It's very traumatic. It's like being in prison. Our hyper-normalized modern life is prison. Now, you might say that's a ridiculous assertion, and I would say, well, what happens when people get richer? They just go to a bigger-sized cell. They just go to a bigger. They yeah, go to a slightly better prison. Maybe that prison has a swimming pool and a tennis court, but it's still a prison. Nobody's free nobody's free point i I defy anybody who's who's listening to this say in the comments point to a free person point tell me who is free we don't zizek makes this point Zizek makes this point we lack the words to describe our unfreedom so it exists again in the unconscious exists again in the shadow we can't say we say there's freedom okay and what about our unfreedom we don't have the words for it we can't express the ways in which we're not free what a wonderful domination what a wonderful form of totalitarianism we're living in now it's perfect you can't fight it what what are you rebelling against netflix porn fast food uber eats and, and and to your door delivery of whatever type of food you want you're free you have every comfort you could wish for inside your prison cell inside your prison cell so it's a perfect form of totalitarianism we're living in now
0: it is, and and that's you you've the lack of words, the lack of lexicon, lack of actual dictionary around this is is something that has bugged the shit out of me for a while because um, I'd like to think it's, and somewhere down in Brent there is a pretty good strong moral compass and yeah I've, I've wavered from it like we all have Um but of recent there's been something that is just fundamentally wrong, it's been there for three or four or five years for me and then this year it started to come and I feel like I've started to feel the edges of it and then talking to people like you before and others have meant that I can just start to describe something and get, because the moment without getting to an object fetish, the moment you can come from being the subject into having it as the object it. Is the moment you can start to see it feel it influence it and be a little bit free from it does that make sense absolutely
1: absolutely if you can name it you can probably tame it if you can say what it is even if you never fully recover from it at least you have the relief of knowing it's not you you're not it's not because you're crazy or you're broken or you're weak there's a Hmm. there's some there is a thing there's a something, there really is something there um, that needs to be identified and, and looked at.
0: So if we flip this from, um, if we flip this from all the junk and all the crap, and I think we've pretty much identified some of the major common sources. And and if if you still want more, I suggest you have a good walk without a phone or anything and have a good think about stuff. If we flip it on its head now, what are some of the components of each person's moral philosophy on one level is going to be relatively subjective because there's otherwise it becomes quite dogmatic. If it's, Mm. you know, um, if it's thou shalt do this on a Tuesday and I don't, and and somebody doesn't do it, then it is, you know, and then we are back into religion and wars and conquistadors and things like that. So there has to be an element of nuance and context around it. What does, what does a, a healthy, what it, What do healthy frames within our moral philosophy start to look like?
1: Um,
0: the, the beginning of it,
1: um, what I encourage people to do is to ask simple questions, simple philosophical questions that philosophers have wrestled with, with for thousands of years. And it's your birthright to ask these questions. And I would also say if you've never asked them, you're missing out and you're very vulnerable. You're very vulnerable to abusive people. You're very vulnerable to abusive systems. So start with the simple ones. What is good? What is evil? How should a person live? How should a person live their lives? Simple, simple philosophical questions. Books, almost infinite number of books have been written trying to answer those three simple questions. Mm. You don't need an answer. You need to have the strength to wrestle with the questions. So it's like um, it's like a strength training, a mental strength training drill. Because every day will be a new answer. As soon as you say you've got the answer, by the way, to what is good, what is evil, how should a person live their lives, you become what is known technically as an asshole. As an asshole. Yeah. Because you'll start telling people you've got the answer. You don't. Nobody ever got the answer. You're not supposed to get the answer That's object fetishism and it's also control freakery, uh, which we can get into if you you want to talk about that. But you're supposed to value the question and you're supposed to be trying to answer it, trying and failing daily. That's what training is. You try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. What for? What's the end goal? There isn't really an end goal. It makes you stronger and builds skill. Gives you the capacity to think. It gives you the capacity to question. So, that you don't have a hysterical shit fit and a temper tantrum like a toddler when somebody comes along and questions your worldview and questions your chosen believees. That's a Louis C.K., the stand up comedian Louis C.K. called these things believees. People get attached like to a, to a teddy bear or a dummy or a pacifier to their special little beliefs. And if you touch them and you touch their toys or you question their toys, they have a shit fit. Well, that's because they're not strong. They're not asking good philosophical questions. They're not capable of critical thought. They're not yeah. capable of contradictory opinions. And they become so fragile and so weak and so thin-skinned that they perceive a contradiction of their believies and their preferred map of reality as a kind of threat, to, as an existential threat, as a threat to their existence itself, which is it's just not a way to live. It's not a way for a... An adult to function in the world. It's but many, many people do. Sorry, very, can I say that again?
0: It's very fragile.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We are fragile now. We're very weak. Hmm. Very, very weak. My God. You, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't need the Nazis to roll down the street in tanks with guns, threatening to put people in concentration camps now. You just switch off their internet for 24
0: hours, they'll lick your boots for you. <laughs> very true. I think I think again one of the things you were saying there about um just it, the fragility of it and and the i think what one of the things that's turned for for me is is holding my world views but then going and listening to other people's you know a podcast will do that for you because you talk and talk and talk and talk well listen and listen and listen and listen but yeah. it, it it's the fragility for me as well is the active Is a complete lack of active pursuit of other people's perspectives and then allowing their perspectives to come in, even if they conflict with yours and and just to expand, expanding your worldview, expanding your life view and things like that. And so I think there's so, so many, I find so many people say, oh, I don't like conflict and stuff like that. And half the time it's like, I'm not talking about conflict, I'm just talking basic collision in life. Yeah. and and just rubbing off against one another. I mean, you know, I, for, for all the ups and downs of going to a boarding school, which, you know, mm-hmm. we could talk about for ages, one of the great things was, was you got a lot of edges knocked off really quickly. Yeah. and you got feedback back really quickly. And, you know, anybody who's grown up with two or three siblings will have had the same thing as well. And which is probably why sometimes only children seem somewhat precocious because they haven't had brothers and sisters to, you know, sometimes knock shit out of it and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and we've become, on top of all the weakness and the Netflix and this, that and the other, we, we don't even seem to actually sit down and converse anymore. I mean, I've got this sort of inner urge to bring back salons back here in Western Australia where people just turn up and and you talk and mm-hmm. you look for high quality disagreement and respectful mm-hmm. disagreement. Because in that, we can build something else. And yeah, do you see where I'm going with that? 100% I, and and I find myself,
1: you know, I listen to people like, um, uh, like, like I said, i read Douglas Murray's book and I listen to Douglas Murray all the time. He's a, a devout Christian. I am not, but he's also a boarding school boy. So we have the three of us have something in common there. He's a devout Christian, which I'm not quite rigidly moralistic which i'm not and he's a right winger well i'm a lefty lefterson. I'm, le- I'm left all day long but he's an intelligent man who can formulate ideas with erudition and eloquence and it is a pleasure to listen to somebody just form their own. I, d- I disagree with him i disagree with jordan peterson but at least there's some erudition there and in my yeah. mind i can say well you know Here's four ways in which that idea can be challenged and should be. I don't hate him. I don't want to kill him. I don't want to. De- I don't want to deplatform him. I'm just in my mind. I'm just practicing. It's it's wrestling. It's like um, it's, mm. it's something. It's back to the Spartans, I guess. What would they do? They would wrestle, yeah. and they they found it just as useful to wrestle and fight and to practice the arts of war as they would argumentation and poetry. So can you? Can you turn up and wrestle with an idea with the same spirit and good natured sportsmanship that you would wrestle with a physical person, a human being? You should be able to do that if you want to be a well-rounded human being. And yeah, uh, yeah we, we really lost that because, you know, I've had a good old rant about social media, but I think it's beyond social media, it's culture in general. We're living mm-hmm. through a very solipsistic, self-indulgent time. And if you only stay inside your echo chamber intellectually, you're doing nothing more than masturbation. It's nothing more than mental masturbation. You're not being challenged, you're not growing. You're not engaging in a, a strength training regime where you're adding the reps and you're adding the weight and you're adding the pressure. It's a no pressure environment because we are beginning to learn to experience pressure as conflict. And you go, no, 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 there's no conflict here, there's pressure, it's just pressure. Enjoy it, grow, you will be strengthened. Trust yourself, comrades, you know, you have the strength to deal with this pain and many other things besides,
0: trust me. Mm. And it's also okay within the scope of a discussion to openly admit, well, do you know, I came into this discussion with this point of view and I'm gonna leave it with this point of view. You know, and when you when was the when was
1: the last time you ever saw that online?
0: <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean I've I I spoke here, it, it, at length in a in a presentation earlier this year. We always become addicted to knowing things and being right. Mm. Because what's the consequence of not being right when well, you look like, you know, in theory you look like an idiot and then oh. Wow. Hmm. Do you Do you think that um, this couple of ideas that have been rattling around in my head for a while, do you think that this almost go going through the ring of some sort of codependency, then coming out, then realising that it's now time for me to instil my set of moral moral um, values and grounding and stuff like that. Mm. Is that- part of the human journey and it's just been amped up and the context has changed
1: yes yes is the answer to your question i i i sort of i want to i want to add a question to it is it's like what is our vision of what human beings should be are we trying to create a nation of philosopher kings and philosopher queens do we want people to be everything they can be and to fulfill their full potential or do we want them obedient uh, broken uh, consuming tax-paying slaves it's mm. a simple simple distinction because we can't have both kind of yeah obviously we know which version of reality we're living in it's clear that when children go to school what they're being set up for is not to raise them to be philosopher kings um, who would overthrow the weak who are predating upon them from the top down. So is it part of the human journey? It is if we have a vision of who we want to be as strong. If our vision of a utopian world is not uh, a nation populated by strong individuals who can challenge those in power and those who take power, Hmm. but our vision of utopia is every single one of our wants is tended to the, the words are policed to a nuance, the thoughts are policed to perfection. Nobody could say anything that would ever offend me. I'd never come across an idea that hurt me or that wounded me or that challenged me in any meaningful way. I was completely protected. May rough men who I never see, you know, guard the walls of my perfect prison paradise. If that's your utopia, then we're moving in another direction. So it depends on the vision. It depends on what we're trying to move towards. I've never held much value for archetypes. When Jordan Peterson goes on about archetypes and references Jung, it's always left me cold. I always think, well, what's the point of that? What's the use of it? This year, I've realized that many of the archetypes are ideals that we're supposed to aspire to. Not all of them, obviously, Mm. but many of them are. And to that extent, I see their value. So we need to choose an ideal to aspire to that we'll fail to meet. We'll we'll be bad philosopher kings. We'll be bad philosopher queens. We'll screw it up. We'll have bad days. We'll get wrong ideas and, you know, we'll fail because we'll be weak and we'll be cowardly. But at least we're trying to move towards that. We're not even Mm. trying that right now. We're just twitching, slobbering slobs, ingesting more and more crap, intellectually and physically.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Because I get... I get concerned that and that's why I, I love that answer because I get concerned that we are over pathologizing where we are in the world and in doing that it's the bad human that's done all of this you know and, yeah. and so, therefore we're back into that whole I am a bad boy and girl we are the bad human you know. Um, it's, it's, it's the human, since we turned up, we're the virus on the planet. We're the ones that fucked mm-hmm. it all up. We've done mm-hmm. this, that. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm, I'm coming to this slightly more controversial view that it's kind of necessary. Um, we're at a point now where for years we've been happy to abdicate our responsibility, our morals, our decisions to higher authority. And more and more, those higher authorities that we've had have collapsed. You know, it's kind of you know, one country could come in and save another country, or this, that, and the other. But we're so interconnected now that we're at a global level where there is nowhere else, you know, unless (laughs) fucking aliens are going to come down, or this, that, and the other. But um, there is there is no other bunch of good guys that are going to come and save. Savers from, from the bad guys. You know mm. that's. All, you know it's easy to have this conspiracy theory. oh, you know there's these good guys, the QAnon uh, fighting for us behind the thing. And this, no. Like I think we've we've escalated and evolved and developed to a point of complexity now where mm. there is no more space for abdication of responsibility. And we've got to seriously start doing some fucking work. We can't abdicate it out anymore. Do you see where I'm going? Not hundred percent. That was some of the thinking. We just, the level of complexity has got to such a point that we, we can't fuck about anymore, but that's brilliant in and of itself. There's a really strange and
1: horrifying cowboy film. Uh, it didn't do very well. Uh, it's, it's kind of a cult movie it's from a few years ago, it's called Bone Tomahawk. I don't recommend people watch it because it it gave me nightmares for months. But in that film, whenever somebody is about to be killed in a horrific way, they are told by their compatriots, don't worry, the cavalry is coming. The cavalry, and it's almost like the words, the cavalry is coming, within the next seven to 10 seconds, somebody's being chopped up, scalped, split in half, raped, you know, it's horrendous. But every single time, in that if anybody does, does the stomach for it, watches that film, whenever they're told the cavalry is coming, turn away from the screen. The cavalry is not coming, the monsters are here. And the end that we are facing now, you know, people say, oh, you conspiracy theorist, you're chicken little, you're saying the sky is falling. We are on the precipice of something truly awful we have in historical terms, a few seconds to do something about it, a few moments, nothing more. If we don't do something about it, we will be in a very bad place very, very soon, far worse than anything we've seen in 2020, far worse. It's just around the corner. We have a chance, we could do something about it, but that that opening is uh, shrinking daily. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Nobody's coming to save us, it's just
0: us. It's just us, with our moral moral framework, our trauma, our our, our, our human fuck-up array.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and we are stupid, you know, like if somebody said to me, what a horrifying um, and terrifying, and also in a way exhilarating idea, you're told it's just you. Like, you're the best we've got. Bryn, you're the best we've got. Oh, me? You don't know how daft I am. You don't know how I waste my time sometimes. You don't yeah. know how cranky I am if I haven't slept. But it's just us. Now, in times gone by, uh, historically, people just knew that and they lived it. And they, they knew they were in history. We feel as though we're not. We're indoctrinated to think history is over. It's a very... Yeah it's a very actually classically Marxist idea that we live with, which is we're already in the end of history and it's written, there's nothing you can do. And this is this is um, the Chinese Communist Party enforces this idea on its people. Yeah. I think we discussed this before, they've banned books in, Ch- in communist China talking about time travel. Science fiction books and films that discuss or show time travel is banned in China because they don't want people to to develop, they, they think the idea of people imagining a different time and a different place is dangerous to their leadership. It's dangerous yes. to their leadership, so they ban it. Folks, think about that for a second. <laughs> Aren't we living in that time? Aren't we living in that same soup? You know, there's nothing you can do, is already written, you don't have a hand in it, so give up. People in time gone, time's gone by, far less technology, far less connectivity, far less resources, they still lived with the idea that there was something that could be done, that they could change things, that they could make a difference, that even if the odds were stacked against them, you think of um, uh, the United Kingdom facing down the might of Nazi Germany. It was not looking good for us for a couple of months there. There was a very real prospect that we would be speaking German in, in inside of a few years didn't go that way because you know people didn't give up hope they didn't they didn't let go of their ideals we could have we could have uh, uh, negotiated many many people including the royal family were all for negotiation we were all for forming an alliance with nazi germany we could have been hitler's homies and that's how history would have remembered us but for a few strong-willed people who did have a moral philosophy who said no no matter what happens no matter what happens we're not doing that we're not going to ally ourselves with lunatics and psychopaths and sadists because it is wrong and that was their justification it wasn't because it was profitable it wasn't because it was comfortable it wasn't because it would lead to more netflix and, and more fast food it was why are we not doing that because it's wrong and we don't yeah. do the wrong thing we do the right thing
0: how so if somebody spends it's one of the interesting questions i have is as well about this is because there's always that point there's always that point somewhere in your teenage years where you kind of know what's right and then um the naughty boy or the naughty girl in the group does something which you know is wrong but it's kind of thrilling and then you bypass your own your own morals and your own values and then you start to get into this whole thing of oh well you know you make up for yourself and this and the other and then, To me, it's almost like later in life, this is gonna become critically important where it's up to you now to become self-authoring in life of of your life and your values. It's one thing to sit and journal out most days, what is good, what is evil, what does a good life look like? How do we then convert that into boundaries and drawing a line in the outside world? Because that's the big scary bit, because you can be the greatest philosopher king in your own journal.
1: Yes, uh, the, the expression for that is you lack the courage, you would be lacking the courage of your convictions, I think the expression for that would be. Yes. I, 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 think, yes. um, I think for most people, and maybe I'm a little optimistic here, but I think for most people, they've just never done the exercise. When you actually do write it down, and you actually do spend time, just, again, not trying to find an answer. Nobody has the answer, for God's sake. But you must wrestle with it, wrestle with with the notion, wrestle with the concept, fight with it daily. You'll have a different answer tomorrow. You say, this is what is good today, and then tomorrow your individual answer will be slightly different in a nuanced but important way. Mm. When you do spend a lot of time doing that, and you're not watching six hours of TV a day, you're now watching five, and one hour is spent on that philosophical question, automatically your unconscious will start making stronger decisions. Because you've, you're developing a new map of reality. Look, via the, the side door, we're creating real neuroplasticity here. We're laying down new neural pathways. Suddenly your unconscious is going to be faced with this new concept that morality matters. And the unconscious is a sometimes functions as like a, a computer machine that observes you as a human being and it goes, morality matters. How do we know it matters? Because the human that runs us is spending all this time focused on it. So whatever you focus on, you're telling the unconscious, it matters. If you focus Mm -hmm. on cocaine, gambling and pornography, you're training your unconscious to go, this is who we are, this is what matters. Find better cocaine, find better gambling, find more porn. If you say no, we're focusing on a moral philosophy where distinguishing between right and wrong, the unconscious will take over and it will say, okay, this is who we are. We are an an entity who's concerned with right and wrong. Find more right, find less wrong. And and it's like um, you're rewriting the map and then the unconscious will steer you in the direction, but it does it unconsciously because it is is the unconscious. If you make it matter in your life, it will just show up for you. And you go, oh, I made a moral decision. I could have made a lot of money working with that guy. I could have made a lot of money or got a lot more followers if I promoted that guy, but I decided not to. I decided that wasn't the way to go. Why? Eh, it just felt I don't know, wrong to do that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you can, you can. These things will become automatic, which is mm. I'm very optimistic about because that which we have to do consciously we usually forget, but once it's gone into the unconscious, you can just kick
0: back, you can relax, yeah. and let the unconscious do its job. Mm. I think also. To add to that, one of the things I found this year is is having a sensitivity to questions that all of a sudden arise and are important to you. So um, the biggest one that came up for me, I think I may have mentioned this before, was at the, start of the, at the start of the year when we had the lockdown and our premier came out and next to him was the chief of police. And the premier says, right, well, I'm going to need you all to stay at home. And I've empowered the chief of police to, you know, Slap your bottoms if you're naughty boys and girls, and you don't come in and out. But you know, it's a bit more serious than that. So the question that came up for me was, I like your
1: version, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'd be a lot more. Wow. There was. but uh, well, it was fines and all sorts of stuff. Because um, yeah, we do live in a bit of a. It is a bit of a police state, Western Australia.
1: It's like it's like it was like a Benny Hill version of the police state. Yeah, yeah, You'll yeah. be chased around <laughs> by a
0: policeman and spanked. Yeah. So not quite. But, but the question I came. I love that. The question I came up with in the middle of that was, why do, it's not just, why do we accept this? It's why do we accept a community? Why do we accept to live in a community whereby it's necessary for the premier to come out, say something, and then the next thing, say, I've empowered the police to make sure that this is happening. Right? Why do we accept anything less of a, a community or a society whereby you know, a respected person who we've elevated to this position comes out and says, I need you to all do something. And we all go, all right, yeah, by and large, we'll do it. And, and he goes, oh, and by the way, for, for the odd five ten and yeah, the policeman can do this, but it's not for all of you lot." And that to me was a very deep question because it's like, why do I accept community? Why do I accept living in a way that I do that requires that dramatic action? To be taken uh, one of the places where, where we got to
1: about 15 minutes ago uh, I was thinking I probably should raise the issue of of control freakery and then I yeah <laughs> that really, but yeah but this this is this has come up again I, the where we've gotten to is we were talking about when you think you've got the answer you start forcing the answer on other people and one of the questions or one of the things that we're not looking at what we need to look at is, is looking at where people are being too controlling and just saying okay, you you think if you kneel at a palm tree in front of me, you kneel by a palm tree on a Thursday morning and say your magic words backwards, you can talk to the angel Gabriel that's fine mate, fine I'm not going to stop you, you go ahead and talk to the angel Gabriel and kneel by the palm tree and say the magic words backwards don't fucking tell me that I have to do it you nutcase, I mean what kind if, if it was reduced to that level where you say, you want to do the thing, go ahead and do the thing. But then somebody comes to my house is knocking on my door going, excuse me, I saw you weren't kneeling by the palm tree and talking to the angel Gabriel today. It's like, well, I, I don't wish to do that. <laughs> why, do, why do you need me to be involved in your thing, thing. your fantasy? Leave me alone. So, anytime uh, the level of uh, the philosophical questions, because that's when things get religious and didactic and people are issuing fatwas and they want to burn people and so on and so forth, we have to point that out and say, listen, you've got your conclusion. I love it, mate. Love it. Your poetry is beautiful, sweet. Kneel by the palm tree, chat to the angel. Cool. Go ahead. No problem with that whatsoever. And I really don't. I really do not care. I would rather people were doing that than watching Netflix, as crazy as it sounds. I'd rather that they were talking to a part of themselves that they believed was this higher, angelic entity that was giving them good information and telling them how to live their lives, I'm all for that. A little bit of psychosis never hurt anybody. <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum where it's political, we do have to look at the control freakery and just call it out and say, look, what's the scientific data that you're working from, please, that tells you that this is absolutely necessary and has to be enforced in law because you're not asking me to do it as they did in Sweden. They asked their citizens to do it. And do you know what happened in Sweden? Their citizens did. They were asked to do it and they did do it because it was reasonable and science-based. We're being told, not asked, and we're being told, shut up and do as you're told this is the conclusion we've come to, and we say, "Excuse me, Daddy, can you tell me why?" No, our scientists have already have already drawn that conclusion. Here's a graph. Here's some long words that you don't understand because you're not an epidemiologist. Here's a doctor with with uh, letters after his name that you don't have. You silly little peasant. Just do as you're told. And I'm sort of sat here going, "I don't want to study epidemiology, but I have." bothered my arse to do it and I've listened to other virologists and I've listen, listened to other epidemiologists and the lockdown as an example I can't find anybody who's telling me that the that, that lockdowns are actually a really good way of stopping the spread of viruses in fact um, the WHO the World Health Organisation months ago said we advise you to stop doing that, it's not a good way of, of, uh, of stopping the spread of a virus and it causes more problems than it solves, the uh, uh, the cure is now worse than the disease. That's the World Health Organization. Who are these submissives, these perverts who love submitting to authority? They're saying, do as you're told. Well, which authority should I listen to, darling? Yeah. About, because uh, four months ago, it was the World Health Organization. And now, now they're out of fashion, are they? So I should just hmm. listen to who? Boris Johnson, the great, <laughs> the great virologist Boris Johnson. Why? I want to know how they're coming to these conclusions and where they're getting the data from. I don't want to be told, do as you're told or else. So I think it's a perfectly valid question. Yes, what kind of society are we living in now where this this just happens and everybody just goes along with it? So what is
0: it? Someone might listen to this and go, all right, moral philosophy. Um, sounds like I've got to go and buy a few Penguin books and and, and get online and and do that. And if you don't know, Penguin's you know, publisher for great learned books. Um, um, but one of the things I find, and I wondered if you do as well, is if you actually, most people actually want to talk about this stuff, right? Mm. It, it, it's not like, it's not like um, last time we were talking about, you know, someone's trauma and what went on at school and whether they got buggered or whether, you know, something this and the other happened. Mm. Um, Not everybody wants to talk about that stuff, Mm. but what's right, what's wrong, what could be going on with the world and this and the other. Most people, if you hold enough space, I find, and, you know, obviously I don't find it difficult because between doing this and just the way I do life, I'll talk to anyone about anything, but it won't be about Mm. shit and not transactional. Um, but I find if I just hold enough space just for a couple of minutes, most people want to talk about this stuff. Do you find the same thing? Oh, 100%. It doesn't matter where
1: you go in the world. Most people want to talk about it. And if you travel a lot and you keep asking people, you'll find there's very few extremists out there. Very mm. few. Very, yeah. very few. Most people are fairly centre on the, on the political spectrum. Not all. You will find extremists, but they're, they're very, very rare. Yet the impression we get from watching mainstream media is the world is full of case extremists. And you better uh, batten down the hatches and, and guard your trenches with greater ferocity because the other team is coming for you. And actually yeah. when you get out there and talk to people, and you say, what is right? Well, you know, how do you think people should live? Yeah, they love, they love having conversations about that. It's yeah. very natural. It's very human. What did we do before television? I'm sure we just sat around the campfire and talked about that for hours.
0: And the reason why I bring this up is because again, it's one thing, you know, doing the work of sitting with your journal and, and then going out there and drawing boundaries. But another key thing is just freaking talk to people. And I'm not talking about but actually just a didactic discussion backwards and forwards, you know, where you can agree respectfully to disagree at times. And
1: and talking is a skill. Everybody thinks that they can talk. Everybody thinks that they can have a discussion. Actually, these things are skills uh, and, they, and they have rules. So when uh, you're being advised by Bryn here to talk to people, it should be, uh, you know, 50% listening and 50% talking. Not mm. You don't talk at them. And here's another piece of advice. When they're talking, don't just think about what you're going to say next. Listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a novel idea. A crazy idea that I recommend. Listen, listen when the other person is speaking. You'll be amazed at the amount of information they give you. Sometimes when I'm doing coaching with people, they're like, "Oh my god, are you psychic? Are you channeling?" I'm like, "No, no, I do this um, really crazy ninja CIA technique called listening. <laughs> You're giving me all the information I need, comrades. Don't worry.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just let you talk and I listen." Yeah. Yeah. My mother has a great phrase. Sometimes, when you when you're not doing it, and it's like, what was it? She says, "Sorry, did the um did the end of my sentence get in the way of the start of yours?" Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All done. Once again, we've covered many topics here, and many people will, sort of, note, hopefully, benevolently, be triggered. Through this, mm. mm. um, and awesome. one of the things, one of the last things I want to sort of talk about is um, this whole concept of triggering. See, triggering seems to have become a real word, um, mm. in the last twelve to eighteen months, particularly. Mm. Um, is trigger the right thing? Is this actually what's how? What? Because I, I've got a framework for it, but you mm. know. We mentioned before benevolently triggering people, and I love going around poking people's buttons. It's that sadistic hangover from boarding school. But what is it triggering?
1: (laughs) This is how we learn to survive at boarding school, folks. (laughs) Um, I I mean, outside of the context of CPTSD and emotional flashbacks specifically, I don't use it. Um, right, And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I tell you i did not like the word and I didn't know why. So I sat down and I had to think about it and I did this a few times and I was thinking, why don't I like the word trigger? Triggers only exist on inanimate objects. Uh, you can have a dead man trigger for a suicide bomb. If you let go of it, it goes off. There's a trigger on a gun. Uh, there's a trigger on other explosive devices. Trigger is unconscious. I don't want to be unconscious. It only functions for inanimate objects. I don't want to be an inanimate object. A trigger only goes one way, it's, it's, um, it's a very simple device. A trigger, it's straight cause and effect. You trigger something, you get an immediate effect. The trigger is the cause and then there's an effect. And triggers go on weapons. They're explosive mm. and they create destruction. Um, so I don't like using the word trigger. I find it's another way of abrogating responsibility and so when i when i heard it being used as i say i will use it if it's cptsd and emotional flashbacks because i don't really know another word you know maybe i would say it provokes an emotional flashback or Mm. you know induces an emotional flashback Mm. but we are not machines we're not explosives we're not guns and the effect of having an emotional response to something is not a bad thing, it's not intrinsically destructive, even if the emotion is ugly, even if the emotion is something that falls outside of your self-image or the way you would like to see yourself. So um, it it also, I I, I think I know where you're going with this. It feeds into that, as you mentioned before, the pathologizing of everything and the soap flaking of everything. You know, I'm a very sensitive individual with mental health issues. If you talk to me about grey chairs, I'm sat on a gray chair. I couldn't I hadn't the imagination to think of anything else. I become triggered because my father sat on a gray chair and I don't yeah. like daddy. Or you know, you know, and you just yeah. think, is this what we are? Is this yeah. it? You're just a vessel that had bad experiences put into you and now you're just a a series of buttons that lead directly to bad experiences and when life happens and touches your buttons you feel bad again hmm. we, we started by talking about the assumptions of psychology that are poisonous well that's one of them how does that how does mainstream psychology through its implicit coordinates not lead people to the conclusion that there are vessels full of bad experiences covered in buttons that when life rubs up against them it touches those buttons and they feel bad how does it not It doesn't teach you, no, you're strong. You're a a warrior, you're a philosopher king, you're a philosopher queen. You're you're to strive and to suffer and build muscle, intellectual, physical, emotional muscle, and get out there in the world and bend reality to your will. Well, that's not what we're doing, is it? That's not the game we're in. (laughs) We don't want people out there bending reality to their will. We want them consuming, paying their taxes and, you know,
0: posting selfies
1: so that we can track their every
0: movement indeed indeed so um last question and i've given it to you before if there's one question that you could upload into the collective consciousness so everyone just thinks about it and you can't have why am i doing this right now because that's what you mm. said last time mm. <laughs> <laughs> better double check in case he tries to chuck it in there um what would it be
1: what do I need to sacrifice to get where I would like to go? The question is a a cheeky double header. It implies that people need to know where they're trying to get to and it makes them focus on sacrifice. We are trying to live our lives free from suffering, free from loss and free from sacrifice. And it's one of the many things that drives us completely bonkers because it does not work like that. It would be like trying to live in denial of gravity. And then you'd be like, oh, my knees hurt, my ankles are broken all the time, <laughs> you know? I keep bumping myself. Um, the gravity of, of life is uh, is sacrifice is a, is a key component. And so with loss, you can't have it all your own way, it doesn't go on forever, it's temporal, you will lose, you will be defeated, and if you want something, you have to work for it, and that work involves sacrifice. So I ask yourself the question, What are you prepared to sacrifice in order to get where you want to get to?
0: Gold, absolute gold. Mm -hmm. Richard, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Yeah. Um, I'm just very grateful for what you do and how you think and being out there. And I'm super grateful to get the opportunity to talk to you on a one-to-one basis as well. And I know there's a lot of people in my community here in Western Australia who watch a lot of your work and they think the same way. And I had a lot of messages when they knew I was going to speak to you again to convey that to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And if anybody wants to find Richard, he has his YouTube channel. He has a number of YouTube channels all worth looking at. Whether it's tentacle croissants or whether it's um, philosophy or whether it's the mental health fortress um where there's a great little video um that probably underpins a lot of what we've been talking about towards the end of that so richard thank you very much for your time thank you sir
1: it's always a pleasure